Welcome to Climate Break's Climate 101, where we talk to experts to get the basics on various climate topics. I'm your host, Ethan Elkind. Today, I sat down in a roundtable with California's trailblazing climate leaders, Mary Nichols, Louise Bedsworth, and Amy Barnes, to talk about lessons from California, where we've gone wrong that other states can learn from, as well as where we've gone right. Mary Nichols is the former head of California's Air Resources Board under multiple governors. Louise Bedsworth ran California's Strategic Growth Council and is now at UC Berkeley Law. Amy Barnes was a senior advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown and is now an advisor to the California-China Climate Institute at UC Berkeley School of Law. Let's listen to the conversation. We are pleased to be joined today on Climate Break by three California climate all-stars who each helped take the lead to implement key aspects of the state's pioneering climate policy. And this is a special Climate Break 101 episode where we're going to go through California's successes and failures, what it's done on climate, what it still needs to do. And for listeners who are unfamiliar with California's climate policies, the state has set in statute ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets, uh, most recently to achieve 40% below 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And there's also an executive order for the state to achieve carbon neutrality by 2045. So first, I wanted to start with you, Mary, to ask where you think the state has made the most progress uh, in achieving these goals, in your opinion, um, and, uh, and what, you, what you would want to specifically highlight that you think uh, has been a real success for California in, in, in these goals. Going back to the early 2000s, California began to put together a comprehensive climate program. It was the first in the country, and it still is uh, the only program that deals with all aspects of climate. So uh, there's a series of legislation uh, which starts with creating an inventory of where greenhouse gases were coming from within the state, uh, a program that originally set up a voluntary registry, which then became permanent and led to the creation of uh, AB 32, which uh, first legislatively uh, put the state on track to match its goals against those of um, the United Nations uh, of the world. We've set ever more progressive goals based on the science and what uh, science consensus, scientific consensus showed uh, is needed to actually achieve it. The first set of goals, the legislative goals, were actually met early. So um, we succeeded in reducing emissions uh, to 1990 levels before 2020. Uh, and now we're developing plans to meet the next set of targets, the 2030 targets, which are much more ambitious and much more difficult to achieve. Uh, but I think it's in this area of devising strategies putting together a mixed portfolio of regulations and economic incentives that has really distinguished the California program because it's not just one uh, set of rules or one approach. It really looks at the um, very complicated uh, uh, role that uh, greenhouse gases play in our society, how embedded they are in our economy, and attempts to devise um, strategies 
to deal with them across the board. So for a state, even one with the size of California to have done that um, has put us at the head of the pack when it comes to uh, governmental entities that have actually tackled the, the problem of uh, climate change. And Mary, just to follow up on something you said, I think it's interesting that you start with the measurement first, that you really can't regulate something until you first measure where greenhouse gas emissions are coming from and, and how many, uh, how much total emissions we have. Um, any lessons learned from that process in California about, because that, that would be true for any jurisdiction, you know, just starting out on this, they'd have to start with the measurement. So any, any recommendations? Well, over the years, um, we have met with people from around the world uh, to talk about how they could address uh, climate change from their perspectives. And we always start with the monitoring, measurement, verification piece of it. Um, it can be the most controversial and difficult, but actually it's um, not as hard as you might think, um, particularly when it comes to uh, the major uh, pollutant that we, that we look at, which is carbon dioxide, because that is directly correlated with fuel burning. So if you know how much gasoline is being consumed, you know how much oil and gas is being burned in your factories and, and uh, in your power plants, if it's uh, coal or, or uh, fossil fuels, um, you know essentially how much CO2 uh, you're emitting into the atmosphere. The only thing that actually made California's um, measurement problem difficult and which is now gonna be something that the whole world is gonna to have to deal with is that we took responsibility for emissions that were generated by power plants out of our state, outside of our state, that make electricity that we import into California. And if you look at the complexities of the global economy and the goods that we ship back and forth um, around the world, coming up with an allocation system that says whose job it is or how they're going to go about reducing those emissions, you really have to have a, a, a life cycle approach uh, to, the, uh, to the greenhouse gases. And that is a, a, much, more, uh, a, a much more complex issue uh, from a, a legal regulatory perspective and even a philosophical perspective. So, Louise, let me turn to you. I know you most recently, before you came to join us at, at Berkeley Law, at CLE, were uh, executive director of the Strategic Growth Council with land use being the, you know, the big uh, sector uh, in terms of how the Strategic Growth Council operates. And uh, with your expertise on land use, that's such a big part of the climate change puzzle is having climate smart land use in all of its different ways. I'm just wondering what your takeaway from California's experience to date has been with trying to foster more climate smart land use, uh, as well as any other comment you want to make about California's progress on climate more generally to date. Thanks. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, really building off of what Mary talked about, which is California establishing this very robust framework and approach for addressing climate change um, that really came from state, from the legislative action, regulatory actions. What we did at the Strategic Growth Council is really try to think, how do you from the ground up, so at the community level, start building the climate solutions to help meet those goals? And so um, 
I think California's done a couple of really important things here that have um, made a real difference. One is starting to build much more integrated approaches to investment. So thinking about how do we link housing and transportation together so that we are placing um, affordable housing near jobs and services and schools, but then also think about broader investments in the communities. So how do we um, you know, get people onto bikes and safely walking or into transit? Um, and so I think that's been a really important evolution, as well as thinking about how we invest in the conservation of land um, as another part of the, of the climate solution. So really, we don't want to you know, sort of limiting sprawl development, but then also looking at maximizing the values and benefits of preserving land, both for the storage of carbon, but for other ecosystem services and benefits. So uh, I do think that's been a really important piece of California's climate progress is really marrying that very top-down approach with a, a community-led vision. And I think with that, then also making a really um, to focus on equity through that work. And so ensuring that we're investing in communities that have experienced uh, over, you know, been overburdened with pollution and toxics, um, but really bringing them along as part of the climate solution that is uh, driven by their vision, their priorities. Um, and so I think that has been a really nice piece to what California has been doing. Mm -hmm. And Louise, you, you talked about the importance of community-led efforts on, on this subject, but it seems like it's a challenge for the state because so much of land use is controlled by local governments or private landowners. So given that dynamic, what are your thoughts about the best path for the state to try to influence land use policies given the, the decentralized nature of, of the governance? Yeah, I mean, I think that always remains a challenge. And I think the state has done a, a number of things. One is to try to build in a set of incentives. So investment programs that really, you know, put a priority on the kind of land use we want to see to address climate solutions. We've also seen a number of legislative um, pieces uh, going through the general planning process through the California Environmental Quality Act to both provide direction for how local planning is done, but then also to build in further incentive for different types of development. Uh, so again, I think even in that land use space, trying to build together sort of this bottom up and a top down approach to encouraging certain practices. All right, well, Amy, you've done a, a lot of work internationally on climate policy, both from you know being out of state government, but also being within state government. And I'm curious, just from your experience, what lessons do you think are the most valuable from California's experience on climate to date for, for world leaders to take note of? Well, I think Mary really charted the path that California has taken. And, and I think that is a path that we've tried to share with jurisdictions around the world through, um, you know, both bilateral cooperation, uh, including with China and Mexico, um, but also through multilateral cooperation. Um, California helped launch the Under Two Coalition, which is a group of subnational governments that committed to the goals of the Paris Agreement. There are over 200 governments that are now a part of that agreement, and California has done quite a bit of you know, support and capacity building to other jurisdictions that are a part of that. 
Uh, and then California has also participated in some of the um, smaller multilateral forums uh, that in many cases uh, are primarily reserved for countries. Uh, so um, one of them around short-lived climate pollutants, one of them around carbon pricing, uh, organized by the World Bank, where you know even um, other national governments are really interested in in the policy approaches that California has has taken. Um, and you know, of course, um, the role that I think California plays internationally has changed uh, over time, uh, depending on the nature of the federal government. Uh, and so during the Obama administration, there was a lot of cooperation and coordination with administration on really helping to stretch towards the, the Paris Agreement and the goals that we needed to, uh, that we all knew we needed to achieve. And then uh, during the Trump administration, uh, California, I think really uh, played a role continuing to, to sort of serve as a, a beacon and carry the torch forward of progress in cooperation with many other states and cities and local governments around the country who um, through, you know, we are still in and the U.S. Climate Alliance and a number of other um, initiatives and forums that were created um, really helped continue to share the message with international partners that the U.S. was going to continue on a path of taking action on climate, despite what the administration, the Trump administration was saying about withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Um, and now, uh, you know, I think, again, we have the Biden administration in place and, and hopefully, I think, an opportunity for really unprecedented cooperation between um, the state and federal government. And Amy, I've, I've been to enough international conferences on climate with California leaders, and you guys are always treated like rock stars at these events where people from around the world want to know, you know, what's, what's California doing? They want to hear from you. Are there certain questions that you tend to get, you know, that are most common that you tend to get about California's experience uh, from other world leaders? And if so, what, what are they? Well, Mary is really a rock star, so uh, that's why that's why that treatment is received. I'd be curious to hear her answer to this question, actually, because I'm sure she's been on the receiving end of more of these questions than I have. But, you know, I think one of the big questions is, you know, how do you do it? There are a lot of questions about the political viability. So how do you do it politically? A lot of questions about the economic impact. So, uh, you know, how are you doing it and not harming your economy. And actually, California, as you know, has been able to do this and, and grow our economy at a rate that outstrips um, other states across the country, uh, other countries around the world. And um, and I think uh, so. I think there's just a little there. There are a lot of questions about sort of what is California's secret sauce? <laughs> and I think the thing is to always kind of demystify it and and be clear that there there isn't really a, a secret sauce. You know, this is a formula, as Mary laid out, that's very clear that other jurisdictions can undertake um, and just to share that. And then, you know, I, I think, of course, there are also um, often questions about specific programs that we have uh, implemented. Um, a lot of conversation over the um, past few years around our um, clean cars program, which, you know, Mary has been very involved in, in coordinating with other jurisdictions on um, a lot of 
questions about our air programs, because a lot of countries in particular, you know, when we were beginning our partnerships with with China, both at the national and subnational levels, they were really coming at the climate question primarily or initially from a from an air pollution, air quality perspective. Um, and so those are just a couple of areas where I think we've we've had specific, you know, in-depth conversations and, and interest. Well, Mary, let me ask you that same question then um, that I asked Amy, which is what are some of the common questions you would get from from leaders from around the world? And to go a step further, what are what are your answers to those common questions? The first time I uh, had a meeting with representatives of China after I uh, joined CARB in 2007 to uh, help implement the California Climate Program, uh, after quite a bit of discussion about how we were designing our climate program, um, it became clear to me that they were overwhelmed by the um, size of the task that we were talking about. Um, this is China compared with California. California is a big and prosperous state, but it certainly doesn't have anything uh, like the, the size or the population of, of China. It turned out that in those days, the entire air pollution program for China was uh, less than a tenth of what CARB had devoted just to pollution. And that doesn't count, doesn't account for the um, history or the uh, resources that have been provided both by the federal government and local governments through the regional air quality districts in California. All of this funded, almost exclusively funded by fees on private sector entities. And so one of the first things I had to say to them is, you can't do this without putting more people into it. It's not going to be possible. Uh, we can help you and we're happy to share the blueprints, you know, share the, share the text, share uh, everything we've, uh, we've done, uh, but you need to have data. You need to have people who collect the data. You need to have the ability to adopt uh, a regulatory program, and that is going to take uh, putting resources into it. So uh, I think that's the best illustration that I could really come up with of the the magnitude of uh, what we have committed to this program. And it is based on the fact that the climate program in California really grew out of uh, decades of work to address our very serious air quality issues and uh, the fact that there's strong public support, public uh, willingness to uh, pay uh, to achieve a healthier environment. Uh, we try to make it as cost effective as possible and to come up with uh, programs which are as um, positive in terms of the economy as, as uh, they can be. Uh, but over the years, there's been a, an evolution, I think, in the, in the way that we go about um, actually implementing our, our goals for the environment that took a lot of, a lot of honing, a lot of 
experimentation. Uh, and the world doesn't have time to replicate that everywhere. That doesn't mean that we have the answer to every uh, issue. Our, we're not identical, obviously, to every other part of the world. Although we do have within California, almost every kind of ecosystem and every economic sector um, that you would find anywhere in the world, including very rural areas, certainly pockets of real uh, poverty, as well as uh, great wealth. Uh, so we, we actually have experienced most of what uh, other uh, countries are, are going through. But um, having said that, um, you know, it, it took a lot to, to get to where we are. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Well, Mary, you make an important point that, you know, this comes out of decades of environmental challenges in California and the governmental response to it, and that there's strong public support in California for improving the environment and addressing environmental challenges. So how much of this is dependent then on political will? You know, it sounds like even in China, when your conversations back in 2007, you know, that might have been a political will question, or maybe just not clear about the scale of what they needed governmentally. But, you know, how much of this, what should be done then to address the political will question, um, if, uh, if that is the key challenge? Yeah, I think in any uh, democratic society, um, there's only so much that government can do without um, having uh, a base among the people uh, demanding that action be taken. Um, and the thing that has helped to create political will in places like China and India and other parts of Southeast Asia, et cetera, is the presence of air pollution, which now uh, you know, makes what we used to experience in Los Angeles look moderate by comparison with some of the really horrific um, pollution problems that they face. So it's, uh, it, it's uh, the public demand to have health be a primary goal of government action and insistence that government do something to um, protect people against the ravages of pollution on their health, uh, and secondarily on the economy. Um, you know, I, I was in China not long after this encounter that I mentioned with the official delegation and, um, you know, going around with young guides in various cities. Um, uh, the the well-educated, much uh, nurtured, uh, group of people who are coming into you know leadership roles, uh, people in their twenties and thirties, um, their attitude towards the smog um, was one of horror and anger and um, a, a feeling that um, their country uh, was you know letting them down if if they couldn't do something about this problem, and I think that has. Uh, made a big difference in uh, the way that resources are allocated, the way that political leadership is addressing these issues. Um, again, I pick on China because they're the biggest emitter, um, but this is true in other places as well, that as people um, become more prosperous, um, they demand that uh, their environment also uh, be made more livable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel to California and the U.S. Maybe mid mid century last year, uh, last century, 
terms of addressing smog. All right. Well, let's let's shift gears a bit to the challenges. We've talked about some of the successes in California and California spreading its message beyond our borders. Uh, starting with you, Louise, what would be that thing that would keep you up at night uh, that worries you about what might stand in the way of California uh, having success, whether it's a 2030 target or the carbon neutrality target? I think actually what keeps me up at night is probably not as much our ability to make progress towards our targets, but is the pace of climate change that we're experiencing right now and just the magnitude of the events that we're seeing in California. And um, and I think a really important piece that we haven't touched on of California's climate work has been its strong investment in science and research from the very beginning, both in thinking about how we develop climate solutions, but then also how we understand what climate change could, will mean for California, but also is what's happening right now in California. So we have a robust climate change indicators uh, process that, you know, that is updated regularly, but we've also done these comprehensive climate change assessments. And these date back um, actually, in, you know, to the 90s. Um, and then we're very influential in, in setting some of the groundwork for the passage of AB 32 and, and some of our big pieces of legislation where we had credible scientists who were looking very specifically at California to say, this is what climate change will mean for our water system, for our forests, for our public health, you know? And so that I think has been really important and we've updated that information regularly. And I think unfortunately now, um, you know, are really understanding that we're actually experiencing what we've been talking about for decades. And um, and so just as an example, the 2015 Rim Fire, which was our second largest wildfire in state history, uh, we received a large award to do rest, restoration and recovery from that, uh, is now the ninth um, largest wildfire in state history. So just in the course of six years, we've seen that kind of a shift and change um, and so I think what keeps me up at night is really that pace of change in our ability to um, protect our ecosystems and our people from um, what is what is happening. And if you look at extreme heat, I think that is uh, really terrifying when we see what, especially what happened in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so I think those are some of the really large challenges we have ahead of us. I think uh, we have a really robust framework for meeting our goals, and that's not to say it's going to be easy by any stretch, but I think we have to very deliberately and thoughtfully couple that with how we're building resilience and preparing all of our communities and systems for the change we're already experiencing. Well, Amy, same question for you, kind of metaphorically, what would keep you up at night about California's ability to meet our climate change goals? Um or, or anything on adaptation as well, given what Louise's comments were about? Gosh, I mean, I think Louise really hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of what is, is worrying for me. It's, it's both, um, you know, the, the fact that the kinds of changes that we, that scientists have projected that we would see as a result of, um, increased greenhouse gases we're already seeing and we're um, not even, you know, we already have, even if we shut down all sources of emissions tomorrow, we already have um, baked in further temperature increase. And so just thinking about the uh, frequency and severity of those 
events continuing to to increase is really is really scary and sad as somebody who's a, you know born and raised in California. <laughs> um, a lot of the places and things and just sort of um, you know I, I grew up going to school in California. Um, my kids, my son um, is seven now and um, basically his entire life, he's had a fall where he was not able to go outdoors for some period of time because of um, the air pollution related to fires in Northern California. And just to think that that's becoming sort of a norm for kids in his generation who are going to think that that's, that that's just the way that way things are. That's really um, heartbreaking to me. And, and then I think about, um, I think the other thing that keeps me up at night is just thinking about the fact that, um, you know, California has been doing this for so long and is, is really, um, one of the leaders in the country and the world in terms of reducing emissions and, uh, that we don't have the luxury of time for other states and governments around the world to go through that learning journey on that same time frame that we really need action, you know, all of them taking action over the next nine to 10 years. Um, and, and then I think, uh, so, so that I think, uh, I'm, I try to think of myself as a, a hopeful, optimistic person, but I think that that also worries me. Yeah. Well, and we'll talk optimism for a last question because we want to leave people with a happy thought. But just to stay with the kind of the, the, the challenge theme here, Mary, when you think about California's climate neutrality goal, 2045, supposed to be climate neutral and maybe even uh, ahead of that year, what do you think are going to be the biggest obstacles for California achieving that, that uh, carbon neutrality? There are uh, a whole broad range of obstacles, but the fundamental uh, issue, I think, is is that we're now uh, aware of the fact, uh, not that we ignored it before, but this is not something we can do alone. Um, many of the uh, big uh, sources of greenhouse gas emissions that we need to tackle are in one way or another uh, under the control of the federal government, like the planes and the ships uh, and the big interstate trucks and the railroad locomotives, that whole piece of the transportation sector, which we are very dependent on as a trading uh, state, uh, are almost exempt, not quite, but very, very difficult for us to uh, have any major uh, control over. Uh, and it's true of the entire realm of, of international, global, commerce that we have to work with and as much as possible through our federal government to influence the rest of the world. We can still lead by example. And I believe that there are still um, solutions that we can pioneer where we can be a model that then we can spread to others because we can show that there are technologies out there that will um, uh, help with uh, reducing emissions greatly, but also uh, are things that can improve productivity. And I think about things like food production, for example, where um, you know we are the 
major producer of a lot of specialty food products, and we're facing huge water shortages as well, and um, breakthroughs in how we can um, manage to continue to enjoy some of the wonderful things that we that we grow here in California, including, of course, our uh, iconic wine industry and do it in a way that uses less water, less energy inputs, and also, um, you know, produces a product that uh, that people all over the world want to have. Um, those are the those are the areas that we need to be spending our focus on, I think, and where we have both big opportunities and also uh, big challenges. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary, given the challenges you just described in terms of federal preemption and the, and the state's role as a subnational entity, what would be some of the policy solutions that you would like to see California, maybe through the legislature, implement that, that could still address uh, our emissions challenges, even given the federal preemption concerns? I mean, what are, if you were kind of the magic wand question, you know, if you had a magic wand, what would be some of the policies you'd like to see implemented, uh, if any? beyond what we have. <laughs> well, uh, I think the areas where we have um, not uh, been as um, aggressive or uh, focused as much of our uh, energy and attention that deserve uh, more uh, primarily are actually in the area of natural solutions, natural-based solutions, and how we deal with those, uh, as well as the um, impact of increasing urbanization, which, you know, despite the, the uh, backflow, if you will, of um, people who can afford to uh, move to rural places or semi-rural places and work from home because they're totally wired electronically, uh, the trend towards greater agglomeration of people in cities still appears to me to be uh, irreversible. And if that's the case, then um, finding ways that people can live in cities and still um, enjoy access to the natural world and move themselves around uh, and uh, do it in a way that uses less energy uh, is is gonna be critical to all of this. So the land use work and the um, policies that relate to how we uh, maintain and improve the productivity of our natural and working lands are the things where I would want to see the most attention paid. Well, I know uh, natural and working lands was something within the purview of Strategic Growth Council. Uh, and Louise, your your work there, uh, thoughts about uh, that being the priority for the state going forward? Or do you have other thoughts about what you'd like to see the state do uh, to help us make sure we can meet these long-term climate goals? Yeah, I think the land use question is a really important one. And I think it really is, um, you know, how do we develop in efficient ways that uh, reduce the conversion of land, uh, that reduce energy demand and energy use, transportation energy use, uh, and that are affordable and accessible for all Californians. And so I think that is probably our one of our largest challenges um, going forward. And then also, of course, avoiding climate risk in, in doing all of that as well. Um, and so I think, 
it's a complicated challenge in terms of, as you noted earlier, roles the state can play in doing that. Um, and, uh, and then also how we're tying regional planning to local planning. And so I think there's a, there are solutions that we could be exploring within that realm. So SB 375, which um, set out a framework for regional planning to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, ARB, um, you know, looks at that and evaluates it and has seen it, it's not doing what it needs to do. And I think there are some solutions in that space that we need to be looking at in terms of how do we start linking what local governments are doing and local general plans are doing to those regional plans. Um, and that's not an easy conversation and getting 375 in place, you know, in 2008 was not an easy conversation, but I think we really probably need to revisit that. Um, and then in the natural and working land space, I think it's also a real question of resources. And I think when you're looking, um, you know, how are we conserving and preserving natural our working landscapes, but then also ensuring that we're doing the necessary work to have sort of the, the management, healthy management of lands. Um, so, and this is a big challenge in the forest space where a lot of our resources right now are going to fight fires that is that are a result of changing climate, but also decades and decades of, of mismanagement of, of our forests. And so how do we sort of shift that calculus so that we are also proactively managing um, for resilience? Uh, so really thinking in a very robust way about what that resource landscape needs to look like. Mm -hmm. And Amy, uh, same question for you. What would you want to see the state uh, do policy-wise on climate at this point? Uh I guess building on what Louise just said, I think that there is a really incredible opportunity for the state and the federal government to coordinate and align in a in an unprecedented way. There is going to be, I mean, there already is billions of dollars of funding flowing from the federal government. Uh, and presuming that the negotiations in DC go well, there will be more funding flowing uh, to states and local governments. And I think if the federal government wants to meet the ambitious goals that it's now set, uh, you know, the Biden administration has set the goal of uh, reducing emissions um, uh, to net zero by 2050, which is, uh, you know, roughly aligned with California's 2045 goal. Uh, it's really going to need to partner with state and local governments to implement that objective. And uh, so I, I think, you know, that's not something that we've done in, in the past, uh, the, either at the federal or state, state or local level. Uh, and so I think really figuring out ways for the federal government and state and local governments to, to cooperate and coordinate towards the achievement of those goals is going to be really important. We'll have to stay tuned on the infrastructure package in particular on that on that front. Well, so last question for the, the three of you. Uh, first of all, is there anything that you want to mention that uh, we haven't mentioned? Uh, otherwise, wanted to ask for listeners who would like to get involved in uh, or learn more about California climate policy, what you would recommend, what, what you would say to them. So, uh, Mary, I'll start with you on that one. I uh, always encourage people who... Uh, are interested in getting into climate work to figure out a way to make whatever it is they're doing uh, climate related because 
the fact is that our problems that we have created for ourselves are so uh, inextricably woven into every aspect of our economy and our lives that I can't think of a profession or a job that a person could be doing or could be uh, educating themselves for that doesn't have a climate link to it. Uh, but you know, if you're looking for um, something to do immediately to um, become directly active and involved as a voter and as a constituent to um, insist and follow up on uh, asking and insisting that our, uh, our government officials are not just paying up service, but are actually following through developing the programs to achieve them and resisting all the various temptations. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just villains or, you know, uh, big industry that's fighting at every step of the way. Um, there are obstacles to change. So being willing to be uh, an advocate and an agent for change is going to be essential and something we need to ask of everyone. Absolutely. Uh, Louise, anything to add to uh, to Mary's advice for people who want to get involved? No, I think Mary hit on everything. I, and I would just double down on the voting um, point, which I think is so incredibly important. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I think on just to build on the sort of every career, every pathway being a climate career pathway. The other thing I would say, and especially as we were just talking about the infrastructure bill, is that every dollar we spend should be a climate dollar. Um, and it's without a doubt, we're going to need to put more resources towards it. But at the same time, we can't afford to spend any dollar that is spent in a way that is not aligned with our climate goals, whether that's reducing emissions, you know, building resilience. Uh, and so I'd really love to see us get to a a point where that is just the ethos with which we approach everything that we do. All right. And I would note you got a hand clap from Mary on that. So that's a, that's a thumbs up for listeners. Uh, and, uh, and Amy, last, uh, last thoughts for those who want to get involved. Uh, I would echo everything that Mary and Louise said, and just also say that we need people who care about climate at every level of government. Uh, so it's not just about voting and holding your elected officials to account, but if you're interested in being involved in or running for office uh, or supporting campaigns of people who are interested in running for office, again, there's no, um, I, don't, I don't think there's any office across government that's too big or too small to be focused on this. Um, so whether that's your city council or your school board or, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I think we need people who are passionate about and focused on climate issues at, at every level of government. So get out there and, and run. All right. Well, Amy Barnes, Louise Bedsworth, Mary Nichols, thank you so much for joining us on Climate Break. Fascinating to hear from all of you and hope to have you back on soon as uh, we make progress on this issue. I'd love to check in with you and hear your thoughts, but thank you all so much. For more information on climate lessons from California, visit climatebreak.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ethan Elkind, and this was Climate Break. Climate Break.